This week in retail news, UK retailer Primark is remaining firm on its brick-and-mortar strategy. Meanwhile, Walmart has decided to ditch the robots it uses for scanning shelves. And this just in, if you haven't yet heard, Amazon entered the Nordic market launching in Sweden in late October. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, November 9th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by my guests, Jesse Rag and Melody Vonderbon. Jesse is the co-founder and managing director at eChameleon, a software designed to help retailers take advantage of global marketplaces without becoming overly reliant on Amazon. Melody is the founder and CEO of Swap Retail, a B2B platform for retailer-to-retailer inventory exchanges. Previously, Melody developed extensive experience in both the wholesale and retail sectors of the fashion industry. Jesse, Melody, great to have you guys on the show. Thank you. Well, the first bit of news we'll cover because of the timely nature is the U.S. election. The body politic remained on edge during the U.S. 2020 general election and retailers around the nation preemptively prepared for potential unrest. Retailers in popular shopping districts such as New York Times Square and Michigan Ave boarded up their windows while the city of Los Angeles shut down traffic to Rodeo Drive from Monday to Wednesday of last week. CVS Pharmacy boarded up stores in areas damaged by unrest in the past, while Walmart boarded up windows in Birmingham, Alabama, only to take them down 24 hours before the election. Walmart also announced it would be temporarily removing guns and ammunition from sales floors only to reverse course and say it would return items to some locations. Melody, I'll pass this question to you first. It's a tough question. Following the death of George Floyd, we saw countless brands express support for protesters. Could preemptively boarding up windows now reflect negatively on brands that have made past social stands? I don't believe so. And the reason why I think that it's acceptable to board up is because if you are boarded up, then you're also taking a step to prevent a future issue. And I feel like if they're already boarded up, then nobody's going to try to do anything. And if nobody has any need to go and break something, then they won't. And that's just my personal perspective is, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think as a business owner, it's really something you have to do is to take your precautions to protect your inventory, to protect your store in general. So no, I don't think so. I, but then again, that's also me coming from a perspective as a business owner and understanding how important it is to have a store to be able to reopen. And I like the phrase you use there, that it makes a lot of sense. And I'll pass this to you, Jesse. Do you feel the same? And do you predict that we'll see an impact in consumer spending because of the election? Yeah, I actually really agree with Melody's points. But there is a big difference between, you know, a political statement such as standing behind a movement like the Black Lives Matter versus effectively protecting their assets. I mean, it's, you know, broken water stores across the country have already had a big hit this year and are going to continue to have a big hit for as long as there's lockdowns happening or, or people afraid to go out and buy things in, in high street stores. So really trying to protect themselves from damaged windows or damage to any goods in stores, I think is just a smart move, especially if these are brands who are you know, maybe have a global presence and might have already experienced this with the London riots in 2011. There was a a shooting, a police shooting, which in the UK is very uncommon. Um, But there was a a guy called Mark Duggan who was shot by the police and it sparked riots all over London. And there was looting and arson everywhere. To be honest, whether or not boarding up is the way to go, I'm not sure. If anything, they're just providing a lot of kindling for any would-be arsons. But I think the bigger concern is really the message that's being sent why is it that that's 
the norm. Why why are we expecting that? That's, uh, I think, my main concern with this. Mm -hmm. And it's just been a tough year for retailers, not only with the pandemic, but then at least in the U.S. with the riots and having to board up in the big cities where a lot of the flagship stores exist. And then now again, boarding up for the election. So it's like something has to give for our retailers out there. And you know what? I really think that it's kind of like if you want to go and make a statement, but there's nowhere to make that same statement that you made before, then you're going to have to choose a different outlet. And so if a statement needs to be made, there will have to be a different way to make it. And it won't be through vandalizing these same places that were. Now, that said, I do believe that the vandalizing that happened I do think that it made a statement. And I think there were a lot of people who did ask, why is this happening? Who maybe would not have asked had it not. And mm-hmm. I saw that within my own retail store. One of the girls who works here said that to another girl. And it really showed me, you know, even though as a business owner, as a retailer in one aspect of my life to say, oh my gosh, I would hate for anything like that to ever happen to my store, to my merchandise, right? And to be put back so much on a year that's already hard enough. And yet when I heard her ask that question and I knew how it came about, I said, the exact reason that happened is so that you would ask. And Mm -hmm. I think that was like really powerful to feel the pain of the retailer and also the movement of Black Lives Matter and how the terrible act of vandalization did get people to ask Mm -hmm. why. So it was, it was very interesting. That is. And that's an interesting story. And for our listeners, Melody referenced being in her store and you are actually calling in from your retail store in Miami. So I think that's just interesting to note. Yes. Everything, you know, aside from being a co-founder of Swap Retail and trying to help retailers and brands transfer inventory to mitigate sale racks, I really speak in first person on so many different matters of this year, 2020, and just being affected by the pandemic by everything that's been happening and feeling it first firsthand. So yeah, everything comes to me, not as co-founder of a tech company, but as a real human experience as a business owner as well. Mm -hmm. Great points. Let's move on to the second topic today. We're going to focus on a large retailer, Primark, or some say Primark. But first, I wanted to tell our listeners a little bit more about Vtex. Vtex is the first and only global, fully integrated end-to-end commerce solution with native marketplace and OMS capabilities. Vtex helps companies in retail, manufacturing, wholesale, groceries, consumer packaged goods, and other verticals to sell more, operate more efficiently, scale seamlessly, and deliver remarkable customer experience. Find out more about what Vtex can do for your business at www.vtex.com. As the UK considers a second wave of lockdowns, British clothing retailer Primark says it has no plans of launching an e-commerce site. And despite the growing shift to digital shopping, Primark's parent company, AB Foods, says the company does not sell online because it does not consider digital to be economically viable, given the selling price of its products. Primark saw a 63% slump in full-year profit due to COVID-19 and has reportedly stated that a second wave of lockdowns would dent sales 
by nearly 375 million pounds. That's huge. Still, Primark says it expects full-year sales and profit through 2021 to be higher than the previous fiscal year. And they're currently operating, by the way, 11 stores in the U.S. and opening a 12th location in Chicago in the coming months. Jesse, I'll pass this to you first. In the U.S., we've seen competitive brands like H&M and Forever 21 trimming their physical stores as consumers are moving more online. With this growing shift, do you think fast fashion brands can afford to forego e-commerce? You know, it's funny. Primark are a really good example of this type of business where they, they simply put their foot down and say, no, this is how we run our business. And throughout history there's been real successes and real failures with that attitude and it's quite funny to look at to look at primark but i think it's also important to see that they're not on their own they're part of a bigger group the general group of ab foods maybe they're losing money on primark but they also sell tea and sugar which in england are probably two of the most purchased products at the moment with everybody sitting at home so i think they're benefiting certainly from well the the ab foods group will be benefiting in general, even where they may be losing on Primark. But as far as e-commerce goes, I think Primark, they've definitely not ruled it out for the medium term. In fact, they explicitly said, we're not going to rule it out. So perhaps in a few years time, we could see them online. I think their general attitude towards online itself is quite questionable and, and their priorities are quite questionable. When you look at some of their other attitudes, such as climate change, they're talking about being net zero by 2050. I mean, that's 30 years away. There's entire nations promising to be net zero before then. And I think Primark simply are playing catch up on too many different fields to even consider online as a real strategy. However, on the other side of it, I think, you know, you could also look at Primark as potentially being quite intelligent. Maybe they're looking at big stores like The Gap pulling away from shopping malls, as you know, was announced last week. And, and as you said, you know, H&M and Forever 21 are definitely bolstering their, their online presence as well. It could well be that Primark are, are working towards a future where they're the only high street store. Certainly in, in the UK, they're lobbying to have 24-hour shopping in some areas where they expect that in a lot of high streets, a lot of city centers, that they know they'd have the demand And they're just pushing to try and get a license to be allowed to open 24 hours a day. So I think that's another type of commerce, which certainly in the UK and and a lot of Europe, at least, is far flung from the norm. Mm -hmm. So, Jesse, you mentioned a few things. You said, in some regards, their general attitude towards online is questionable. They've also put a really far goal date of 2050 for being net zero. And so they're playing catch up. But you said, on the other hand, this could be a serious strategy that is working towards a future for them where they could be one of the only retailers left on the high street and being open 24-7 if that gets approved. Melody, what are your thoughts to what Jesse said? If Primark considers their competition to be H&M and Forever 21, that they would need to evolve. Because if you look at who the customer of these two brands are, then you would say that this is a person who is shopping online. And they are shopping online all the time. So yes, casually, you might stroll into an H&M or a Forever 21. But if you're looking at a 20-something-year-old, they are always on their phone. They are always shopping. And if you have a Goodwill brand name like Primark, then you already have that awareness. And you already have customers who might be wondering, gee, I wonder what's in Primark this week, right? Mm -hmm. And during a time of a pandemic, why not give them a way to buy online? If you already have a customer 
why not give them every sales channel available to be your customer? That's a great question. It's a very good point. And I think one thing that you can't forget with Primark, as with every brand, whether or not they want it, their products are already available online. If you look on Amazon and type in Primark, there are products being sold, licensed Primark products being sold on most countries, Amazon, certainly on eBay. Whether or not this is authorized, I don't know. Maybe it's a ploy from a subdivision of Primark that's just testing the waters, or maybe it's just you know black market sellers trying to make a quick buck. But those products are there anyway. So it's also possible that Primark is saying, well, hey, you know what? We're not, we don't want to use it as a sales channel, but our buyers are going there and looking for our products. They're searching for the products. Let's at least use it as a marketing channel. I would say if you have the advantage of knowing who your customer is and what they buy, I say get in front of them as often as you can in any way that you can accommodate them. That's my belief as a retailer. And if you have the means to do it, like Primark does especially. But it was very interesting though. I mean, I, I see that you know, parent company being perishable goods, they might just think that they can't turn it fast enough online or maybe it'll move too quickly in one channel and, and not have the ATS to sell online as well. Whatever their case may be, I would say figure it out and get online and sell directly Primark to directly to their customer. That would be my point. (laughs) I think the thing as well is though, is that Primark sell, you know, it's easy enough to say, let's just only sell products above a certain price range, or we sell bundles of items and they can come up with outfits. There's enough options out there for innovation. And as you say, they've got the clout, they've got the resources where they could definitely put a team together and figure out, okay, well, how can we actually make this economically viable to do this marketplace thing, to do this online thing? There's got to be a way that I don't believe for a moment that Primark don't have the access to the resources to make that work. And yeah, I completely agree. You know, they, they really should be. But also, I don't know, part of me is definitely happy that they're not because I'm not a massive fan of how they operate. Yeah, it definitely seems like they just have some really deep rooted beliefs that are causing them to stay on the track that they're on. Because mm-hmm. obviously the means is not the reason why they are not evolving or pivoting. So clearly it's a, it's a deep-rooted belief that is keeping them on track. And to Melody's point, if you have the data and you know who your customer is and what they buy, that is a huge advantage versus going and relying on Amazon, which we know is notorious for not sharing all the data that they maybe could with their retail partners. And by the way, Jesse, you mentioned Amazon before we started recording and you said We should probably mention for our listeners, Amazon.com did launch in Sweden October 28th, and this is marking its first local presence in the Nordics. What are your thoughts on that, Jesse? Are you excited about this, given your focus on marketplaces, or are you nervous? I'm definitely excited. I think it's a good opportunity for non-Swedish retailers to enter the Nordics. It's interesting, though, because we saw the same thing happen with Amazon when they opened in the Netherlands a few months ago, back in uh, March. The first days were just filled with translation blunders where they had not bothered to translate the website properly. And there were a lot. There was a lot of uproar locally from people saying, "Hey, you know, you're trying to enter our market, and you can't even be bothered to get the listings or or the website translated properly." I think that there were definitely arguments about whether or not this was a marketing push because it certainly got more. I saw more people complaining about bad translations than I did actual information about Amazon's launch. So maybe that was a clever marketing tactic from Amazon. It's a good way to ride the wave. Amazon go into countries and they just kind of throw their weight around until local consumers realize that they can buy locally. Just like Dutch buyers were always buying from Amazon in Germany or some cases Amazon France and getting their items delivered to where they are in in Holland. Swedish buyers have been doing the same thing for a number of years. And, you know, you've obviously got IKEA in Sweden as well, who, again, have a fantastic online presence, and they're really sort of reinventing 
e-commerce in their own unique ways. It's going to be interesting to see how a Swedish consumer sort of reacts to this. There are a few local marketplaces in the Nordic region, but certainly Amazon going there is going to bring with it a lot of British, German, French, American retailers who are already selling on all of the other Amazons. And I think a lot of Swedish or Nordic retailers in general are going to be scrambling to try and compete and make sure that they're on there as well, perhaps on a marketplace that they're not yet familiar with. So great opportunity for other and new sellers to enter that market. Melody, did you have any thoughts on that before we hop to our last topic of the day? I would say that in a time where there's a pandemic and sales are down, (laughs) every opportunity to open up a new door, to open up a new customer relationship is critical. And so if launching into a new market allows, like Jesse said, allows new sellers to broaden their reach, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, there's a lot of people who love Amazon, hate Amazon, but, you know, truthfully, I do believe there are a lot of retailers who are benefiting from an online presence, especially while local sales may be down. You're absolutely right about that. I think the where people just need to become be careful is to just not become too reliant on Amazon. This is something that I see so often is you'll have a business that maybe starts off with a handful of products and they realize that Amazon is a great way to sell them. And then suddenly they're selling hundreds or thousands or you know tens of thousands of products all on Amazon. And maybe they've got a Shopify site or they're, they're maybe on a couple of other marketplaces alongside it, but still 80 or 90% of their revenue is coming from this one channel. And it might be amazon.com or it might be all of the Amazons around the world that they're on, but 80% of their revenue is coming from that one conglomerate. That's a terrifying place to be on your egg. <laughs> Isn't <account>. it? <laughs> well, that's it. You mess you mess up once and suddenly your account's suspended for three weeks and you know, you're not getting any sales in. Amazon's holding on to all your cash. You you can't pay your employees. Your entire business goes under in, in a few weeks just because of, you know, maybe a, you forgot to mark an item as dispatched or you forgot to put it on holiday mode and you went away for a couple of days. You know, people make those mistakes and Amazon don't care. They won't accept that as an excuse. And so that's why, you know, I'm a really big proponent of like, yes, marketplaces are great. And Amazon is obviously worth being on, but you need to be on as many marketplaces as possible. And and you need to be doing them all just as well and, and investing just as much in all of them. And you know what? It's interesting you say that, Jesse, because this has been advice given for as long as time has ever been. If you look all the way in Proverbs written by King Solomon, he says the same thing. Make sure you diversify your portfolio. Do not put everything in one basket. So it's interesting if you go all the way, 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 way back, (laughs) that is how it's always supposed to be when it comes to running a business or even just your personal finance portfolio. So funny. It's a tale as old as time. And yet we still have human error and we get tunnel vision sometimes. What's good in retail this week? Starbucks seasonal holiday menu returned to its cafes. The coffee chain's peppermint mocha, toasted white chocolate mocha, and eggnog latte are back on the menu, as well as four new festive red cup designs. The National Retail Federation's chief economist Jack Kleinhen said last week that Americans have shown their resilience during the COVID-19 pandemic, citing strong growth in retail sales during the last few months. Kleinhen says that growth is a promising sign for retailers banking on holiday sales. It's funny because we're talking about one of the big hitters, Amazon, and we're switching to its competitor, even bigger, Walmart. 
they just made a really interesting announcement. So there's been a turn of events and Walmart ended its contract with Bossa Nova Robotics. They have worked with Bossa Nova Robotics over the last five years and deployed over 500 of their inventory scanning robots across Walmart stores. But last week, Walmart said it's come up with other simple and cost-effective ways to manage the products on its shelves with human workers rather than the robots, as reported by The Wall Street Journal. The CEO of Walmart US, John Ferner, reportedly had concerns over how consumers are viewing the robots and that contributed to this decision. Melody, what are your thoughts on Walmart ditching its shelf scanning robots for human workers? And do you think that's the real story? You know, the real story, I'm not sure about, but I would say the margin for error that they are now about to play with is what concerns me more than anything. So I have a retail store and I see my staff and how they inventory, count inventory, right? And I see things go wrong. And it doesn't matter how hard you try, there is still going to be a margin for error. So I'm wondering how you're going to go from robots, who I would imagine have a pretty low margin of error, to human beings. And that would be, you know, really my my bigger concern is how much will they potentially lose by switching back to to a more human touch in this particular aspect. I, I mean, I question it and I, and I don't know if really you can say people were paying attention to robots in aisles was really an issue. I don't know. I've never been particularly bothered by a robot any more than I've been bothered by somebody who gives poor customer service. <laughs> so you're a little hesitant on that. It's a questionable because of the margin of error that is inherent with human workers, of course. Jesse, what is your thought? I think it's a very good point that obviously uh, humans by their very nature are going to make mistakes. But Walmart haven't necessarily come out and said that they're going to be relying on human nature. They're getting rid of robots, but the obvious middle ground is artificial intelligence. And there are a few solutions out there. And, you know, Walmart haven't said anything about this. I don't know anything really about it, but there are a few solutions out there. I know there's one company, I think they're called Oculogics, which they're basically operating in exactly this space. They're trying to basically get the best of both. And it's AI, which is sort of taking over exactly this area where you can then get that human element of it and whether it's humans because people want to see humans and you know you mentioned what is the real story i think walmart have realized that a very easy way to compete against amazon is to do right by the people on their workforce i mean how much bad press does amazon get because of the way that their employees are treated how many people leave an Amazon warehouse after a 14-hour shift on minimum wage with bad back, bad feet, they've been running around on concrete, and then they go to the press because they can make a quick buck, and the press love it because, you know, people love to hate Amazon. Maybe Walmart are going, well, hey, you know what, let's actually do the reverse of what the industry has been doing for the last 100 years. Let's not replace people with robots. Let's do the opposite. And also, let's make their job easy by implementing some artificial intelligence so that they don't make mistakes. That would be a wonderful balance if that's the trajectory. Well, and I think you have a good point. Not only are they maybe involving AI as a replacement, a mix of AI plus humans to replace the shelf scanning robots, but also you said it's an easy win, at least from a PR perspective, to compete against Amazon since they receive so much backlash for how they treat their employees in the low pay. My question would just be, is it really at all about 
getting rid of the robots to hire humans? Or are they canceling contracts because there's a new technology that's on the horizon? Similar to what you said, Jesse, around AI, but maybe it has to do with artificial intelligence through the camera systems that they could deploy in store to help with some of that. So I don't know, maybe there's something out there that's coming that we don't know about just yet. It's definitely interesting. I mentioned that uh, company, Oculogix. I really don't know too much about that space. Obviously, my focus is definitely more on marketplaces. So most technologies that I'm dealing with are sort of order management or fulfillment for that sort of things. But definitely, there are quite a few innovating companies in that area. So it's definitely a space worth watching. And as we wrap today, Melody, because you are a retailer yourself and also CEO and co-founder, I don't know how you fit everything into your day, but what is one thing that you would say is a takeaway from you this year in 2020 since we're heading towards the final months? Oh, I would say evolve or die. <laughs> it has been. That's one thing that I would say. So looking at launching Swap Retail this past January, we didn't see a pandemic coming when we launched in January. We've just always been focused on the greatest inventory pain of stale inventory and how that affects the turns of a retailer, their top and bottom lines, and really the brand retailer relationship as a whole for specialty stores. And when the pandemic hit, we kind of went top of mind because retailers... Now, maybe if someone had a little tiny inventory pain before, they have a big inventory pain now. And so it's been really interesting to see not only myself as a retailer, but all the other retailers saying, what can I do to progress my business, to mitigate my losses, and to advance for the coming year? And so I would say, as a retailer, I enlisted the help of a planning office and buying office because I said, I don't want to do next year alone. I want to be set up for success because if wave two comes in this pandemic, I need to be ready for it. On the swap retail front saying, which brands do I need to be partnering with that are no longer going to have stock in case reorders are amiss and retailers are in need of them, they'll be able to work with the other retailers. And so this has been a major planning year for me. And I have taken all of the times where sales are down or or things seem to be dreary or disconcerting and saying, what can I put in place to really be on the offense and not the defense? And so I would say evolve or die so that you can choose to run your business in an offensive manner, not a defensive manner. Good points. Evolve or die. That's so true. And Jesse, what would you add? What has been your learnings? I know you work with retailers at eChameleon. Not to sound like a broken record, but marketplaces, they're a fantastic resource, whether it's for retailers or a brand. From a retail perspective, I think most retailers these days are at least on you know, Amazon or you know one or two marketplaces, but certainly diversifying into different marketplaces. But then from a brand perspective, a lot of brands shy away from marketplaces because they look at the way that products, their products are sold on, for example, Amazon by what they maybe consider a cowboy retailer. They look at it and say, oh, it cheapens the brand. I think what a lot of brands don't realize is that marketplaces want to make it easy for brands to represent themselves. And obviously with Amazon, you've got the brand registry. And certainly with a lot of other marketplaces, you have different features if you are a brand. And brands don't tend to realize that they can use a, re uh, a marketplace as a, re as a marketing channel rather than a sales channel. Their retail partners probably spend a good percentage of their time every week or every month tearing their hair out, trying to figure out how to sell a product on a marketplace, whereas the brand could actually do a lot of that work for them and everyone benefits. The brands then don't need to add inventory and the retailers benefit as well. And what it means is that you, where consumers now are going to e-commerce like crazy and you've got brands and retailers all kind of chasing after themselves, trying to figure out how this 
online thing works, marketplaces are a very, very good way to do that. A lot of the work's been taken out of the process. You don't have to figure out how to get traffic to this new channel. You don't have to figure out how to make it all work for you. It's all done. There's the resources are out there. The marketplaces are focusing on probably 80% of the work. You've just got to get your products on there and, and start selling them. Absolutely. And meet your customer where they are and evolve or die. And part of that is getting on marketplaces and getting on any channel you possibly can. Okay, Jesse Rag, co-founder and managing director at eChameleon, and Melody Vonderbond, founder and CEO of Swap Retail. Thank you guys so much for joining today. Thank, Thank you. you. Great to be on. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.